When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the Daft Punk's utter triumph at the 2014 Grammys, the moment when the American music industry finally embraced electronic dance music. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or... Shall I say techno roll, perhaps for the last time, at least the last time for a little bit. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joining with me is Ryan Harkness to conclude our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. We will have Michelangelo back next week to do a wrap-up interview, but this is the last chapter in the book. So, Ryan, old lang syne. I'm excited. I'm excited, but I tell you, it feels almost surreal to be reading about dance music happenings that occurred, you know, less than a decade ago. I have I had many vague memories of 1998, but 2013 feels like literally yesterday, not history. Exactly. I was already an out of touch, you know, old fogey by then. I had no idea any of this was going on other than that Spring Breakers movie by Harmony Corinne that had the Skrillex soundtrack. That was my uh, my brush with reality pop culture reality at that point but yeah it is weird to be um i mean we're we're at the release of daft punk's random access memories each chapter has been uh around organized around a party or a dance event and this chapter is based on the post grammys party for the where random access memories won january 26 2014 is that right because he doesn't actually come out and say exactly what the 
Yeah, I mean, all the past chapters have been specific events and raves and parties and stuff. And this one here is just kind of like it's the Daft Punk's latest album. That's there. There we go. Like it it's may, might be a little not not as fitting in there as the into the theme. But it's like, whatever, this is it. This is what it's really about. Yeah, but there is a party they talk about at the end. And it is. And so I'm assuming that that was the January 26th party was the, the Grammy after party. So anyway, but the chapter does kind of work as like a. It's more of a sampler chapter. You know what I mean? It's like got multiple short segments. It's a shorter chapter than most of them. And there's less of a grand narrative. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah, it's like that montage in Goodfellas where everybody's getting whacked. It's like he's tying up all the loose ends and and touching on everything that's happening now. And then I, I really enjoy how he brings it back home at the end and, and takes us back to a couple of the pioneers. Yep. And and we will be losing a couple of pioneers in, in this chapter. So, but but it opens up with uh, the Grammys, February twelfth, twenty twelve, the year before or two years before uh, the party in question, and this was when Skrillex accepts three Grammys that night. And during his speech, he says, "I think Justice's Cross should have won a Grammy. I think Daft Punk should have won Grammys." Of course, Matos points out that Daft Punk had won a couple Grammys by that point, but. Um, he also points out that they had lost, that Defunk had lost uh, to Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder in 1998. Around the World lost to Madonna in 1999. One more time, lost to Janet Jackson in 2002. So um, Skrillex is kind of wrong on the details, but right in the big picture. And yeah. right in just basically getting up there and giving voice to a number of people. Like uh, Skrillex gets a lot of hate, obviously, for for quote unquote ruining dubstep. But you know, he went up there and he he gave a nod to all the all the big guys and and kind of acknowledged the fact that he felt like he was just kind of the the placeholder representative for electronic dance music that night, which I think uh, was was kind of cool of him. Yeah, it wasn't. It was comparable to Kurt Cobain's Daniel Johnston t-shirt or having the meat puppets come on his, uh, uh, you know, MTV unplugged show. So it's like the anti Kanye. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't, and he, and he spoke in his own time rather than jumping on stage during somebody else's slot. But yeah, he called out diesel boy and the Cro Croydon, uh, dubstep mafia, the dub police never say die, you know? So he did, he did give people shout outs and, um, and and like Manos points out, you know, Daft Punk had been kind of screwed by the Grammys on multiple occasions. Or I don't know about screwed, but they'd been they'd been bridesmaid many more times than they'd been uh, the winners um, there. And then and then he shifts though. So so we'll just kind of run through the little sections. So the next section then is about an event at the Jones Beach Theater in Long Island on July 28th, 2012. Uh, that this was the second annual traveling William Morris. This is the high-end high booking agency, EDM Showcase. And Matos apparently went there because he's describing the crowd. He's talking about the age of the crowd, which is teenagers, 14 to 18. And I, I thought this was kind of interesting meta-analysis. He talks about how, you know, the girls are dressing pretty sexily, and they're also writing a, a lot of things on themselves like slut and, and stuff that Matos just openly says he felt sorry for the young girls that were doing this stuff. He said that they were not so much advertising their own wantonness as advertising that they're advertising their own wantonness. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is perhaps one of those generational crossed wires moments where us older folks don't really get what the kids are doing. Like, uh, trust me, I, coming from the days where girls were wearing fat pants and hoodies to raves, it was really crazy seeing these girls in booty shorts and pasties invade electronic dance music with all the slut stuff, too. But these women knew what they were doing, and they knew what our reaction to it would be. Having slut written on them isn't some horny declaration. It's a pushback against the prudishness and misogyny that they experience every day. They're going to be called a slut for dressing any way they want to dress, and that applies to them showing some cleavage or midriff as much as it does to the, you know them going down right to the pasties. So I always felt like you know the slut thing was about taking back the word and saying, yeah, so like women are allowed to dress sexually. Women are allowed to express themselves. And even though that expression wasn't actually often about the male gaze, it's perfectly fine when it is too. So women who dare to express themselves sexually are often labeled slut. So it's about preemptively like using the word to shut down critics, or at least that's how I kind of came to understand it after a lot of listening. <laughs> and that's that's all we can do. And then he zeroes in on a woman named Morgan, who's 23, that he apparently met at that party. She's a med student, or was at the time. She'd been partying for seven years, which I assume means going to raves and, and dance events um, rather than, say, doing sex work or, or taking drugs or whatever. There's many definitions of partying, but I think what Matos meant was she was in the dance scene for seven years. But the friend who first took her to her first dance show, which was an Armin Van Buren uh, gig, OD'd at a party two years before this show, so in 2010. And the, the Matos doesn't make it clear if she died or not, but the implication is that the, the, the girl's friend, Morgan's friend, had passed away. But then Morgan was taking that friend, her, her OD'd friend's little sister, to the show for the first time. And then basically Luke had lost her in the pit already <laughs> and had pulled back. Um, but presumably everything turned out well for Morgan and her younger friend. It was just some, some kind of... I don't know when when Reynolds did the thing where he would go back, and go to a show, especially in the later days. He would be very clear. I, Simon Reynolds, went to this show on this date and and interviewed these people. Matos is as he is as one a little bit more elliptical, a little bit more artsy. So if he's describing details that happen in a place, you kind of can assume he was there, but he, he's not as. Um, Transparency is not the right thing because as a, virtu a virtue. He's not placing himself in the story as much as maybe. Yeah. 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 And then, um, yeah. But anyway, let's get our cue out of the way. This is Daft Punk live at the Grammys. And uh, you didn't give me a year for this. What is this at? You know what? Actually, this is this is the this is I think the 2014 one. I kind of I kind of messed up when we were talking about the Grammys. I put the Daft Punk Grammy thing from Random Access Memories right at the beginning of the show, but we're we're in it now, so let's do it. All right, Daft Punk live at the Grammys 2014. And that was Daft Punk live at the Grammys in 2014. Pretty obvious why you picked this one? 
Yeah, I mean, we're the, the whole chapter kind of bookends between the Grammys. So, uh, a little spoiler: Daft Punk wins the, a Grammy for Random Access Memories. <laughs> I hope not too many people are going to be upset that they've been saving that 2014 Grammy show on their DVR, on the, their old TiVo to to watch. But then the next event he goes to or covers is the Electric Zoo on Randall's Island in New York, and this is like Randall's Island is a weird little spot, like around the corner from Rikers Island, kind of between. Long Island and Manhattan Island. Um, and um, it's it's an event that was produced by Made Events. It was a, and Matos describes it as state of the art, more college than high school, I guess, in contrast to the Jones Beach event. It was a three day event, four stages, 12 hours a day, over 100 DJs. Matos describes the music as all over the place, both in style and quality. And then he gets into the sort of the demographics of it and points out that the racial mix is very different than in the 90s. I assume what he means is it's more it's less white and because he then goes into a thing about how millennials as a generation are more diverse than Generation X um, and you know more diverse than any uh, American generation history. There's a heavy East Asian and South Asian presence as well as a good sized Hispanic presence at the event. He says there's still relatively few blacks, but that ratio is changing too. And he thinks that marketing it as a quote dance festival rather than a quote rave um, makes it more appealing to black people that the rave brand essentially has been poisoned in the black community to mean corny white people. As corny white people, how do we take that? Ah, uh, you know, I mean, I can't, you can't really argue that rave as a, as a term was kind of poisoned in general. And I think it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, not only for the people attending, but for the parents of the people attending, just calling it a dance festival makes it easier for everybody to 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 go without any preconceived ideas of what's going to happen there and what you're doing. And maybe you're a drug user, maybe you're this and maybe you're that. So there was a lot of baggage that came along with rave and corny white people is like <laughs> maybe one of the least problematic ones to have to deal with when you tell people you're going to a rave. Yeah, but it probably did uh, discourage black people from coming. Like you know, uh, but and then and then he gets a little bit um, puts his critics hat on it. Did you notice in this chapter it seemed like he was kind of? I felt like he'd been very guarded throughout the book and kind of didn't harp on who his favorites were and didn't really trash too many artists. But in this chapter, he kind of rips into some people. Did you kind of notice that? Yeah, absolutely. There was definitely like a, I, I mean, I think it comes from the fact that probably he's similar to me in that, you know, the the past eras were, were my eras and this era, he's kind of coming into it as an outsider, making judgment calls on it and stuff like that, as I did as well. And he's a bit more free with his opinion on, you know, what EDM has become. And objectively, I mean, you can't argue that a lot of it was was much more shallow and much more derivative and much more just throwaway or just as throwaway as most of the, you know, the 90 percent of, of any genre that's gotten popular, 90 percent of what's being made of it is just throwaway. And you just, you know, the 10% is the cream that we all remember. Yeah, and there's two artists at the Electric Zoo that he he singles out for praise. And one is Maya Jane Coles and her percolating house grooves. And the other one is Skrillex. Skrillex is the other highlight. He says he, Skrillex was the last act on Sunday's main stage. He does ding him for talking on the mic too damn much, quote. But he also says the push-pull between Skrillex and the crowd is clear. Shared worldview, suitably apocalyptic. So... 
he's crediting Skrillex with engaging in the communication with the crowd that's essential to the craft of DJing, as we've been studying since we started talking about Brewster and Broughton's last night of DJ Save My Life. So Skrillex is still checking the box for the fundamental function of a DJ, which is to make sure the crowd's happy, pay attention to the crowd, and feed the crowd what it wants. Yeah, and, and it's like the shared worldview being suitably apocalyptic. That reminded me of something Simon Reynolds pointed out in, in his book, Energy Flash, that early rave and electronic music had this positive futurist feel, like we were on the cusp of this new, exciting world. And we've definitely lost that in, in the modern day. And it's replaced with a pretty apt metaphor for the state of the world, where the music is just like this car engine going at 8,000 RPM. The gaskets are screaming and smoke is coming out of it. And it's like YOLO. And that's like Nero fiddling while the world burns. And it kind of sucks that we've lost that optimistic edge to the subculture. But then again, the kids aren't wrong. They see what's going on with the world and they know what's up. Yeah, that's the deal. And despite Nero's virtues as a poet, dramatist, and musician, wasn't such a good emperor as as they as we look back anyway. Then then the next uh, event he goes to is the Random Access Memories release in my, Miami in March 2013. So I assume this is at. Um, he doesn't mention the Winter Conference, so I don't know if it's just at the Ultimate Conference that or the fest that's kind of replaced the winter music conference. But anyway, he talks about there's bill, a billboard campaign that Columbia records does. And, and um, they do them in Miami in the spring. And they also do it at South by Southwest here in Austin, a big, massive global um, music industry confab. And all the billboard has on it is the iconic dash punk robo helmets. And it's the album cover, like where there's, you know, the two helmets, merged together and the Columbia Records logo in the corner. So by 2013, Daft Punk had gotten so iconic, they could be advertised with just a picture, you know, like the Beatles 1964 or whatever. You did, you don't need to say Daft Punk. You don't need to tell who, what, where, where, and why. People are assumed once they see the icon, they know what Daft Punk is. So it's big. It's big time. And then he points out that the, the PR in the run-up to the release is more memorable than almost all the album songs. Ouch. <laughs> he really, I don't know. We've, we've had a decade almost to digest random access memories. Is he being too hard on it or has it, has it improved? Well, do, doing my research, I read that Pitchfork initially gave it like a, an 8.5 or something like that. And then seven years later, they went back and they put it down to a 6.3. So there's, there's a general feeling, I think, from a lot of people that, that maybe random access memories uh, coasted on the strength of its singles. But, uh, you know, going back on it, actually, I think it's, uh, it's got, it, it, if it was broken into four different EPs, like all the Yacht Rock ended up on one album, all of the, the disco ended up on another album, and then, like, you know, all of the electronic stuff ended up on, an, on, on well, not an album, an EP, like one of these shorter things or an LP, then it all would have made a lot more sense. But it's kind of a disjointed weird thing that I've come to appreciate over the years. But when it came out, I remember the lead up. The lead up was really memorable. And when when Get Lucky came out or when when Get Lucky was being advertised, it was just a 30 second snippet that was kind of everywhere in ads and everything else like this. And uh, people took the 30 second snippet and basically there was like 200 bootlegs of this song just built off of this this one loop. And and people were every every single day you'd go online and you'd see if the actual track finally had dropped. So it was the the the, the promo for it was on point. Everybody was waiting and everybody was really hyped. 
Yeah, and that and that ad you mentioned that debuted on Saturday Night Live, um, and and it was kind of a TikTok before TikTok because, like you said, it's just a thirty second snippet of the song, so it's kind of looking into the future. And as far as them like making a weak album, like let's keep in mind they're twenty years into their career at this point. Like Rolling Stones albums in the nineteen eighties were blatantly terrible. So if they're better than that, you know, the, you know, the Beatles weren't making albums 20 years into their career. So I think it's pretty understandable that they would have fallen off. But the other, the other big factor in the, in the hype was all the uh, celebrity collaborators they had, like Al Rogers, the funk disco legend of chic fame also produced David Bowie and Madonna, uh, Pharrell Williams of the Neptunes, you know, state of the art hip hop producer in the nineties and two thousands. You had Panda Bear on there of Animal Animal Collective. You had Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. And Paul Williams, the guy who wrote the songs from the Muppet movie, he's he's in there. So, yeah, and and that I do remember. That did catch my notice. But let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is Bauer, Harlem Shake. was Bowers Harlem Shake and perfectly timed because we're just about to talk about this single. So do you have any any intro notes before we get into the discussion of this? Uh, just the fact that I, I know a lot of people have some hate for for Bauer because he inflicted the Harlem Shake on, on them. But uh, he's, you know, if you look past that on his discography, he's got a new album or an album from 2020 called uh, Wild Planet, I believe it's called. And uh, it's it's amazing. And, and trap is one of those misunderstood genres, I feel, that doesn't get the appreciation it deserves. And uh, and Bauer is definitely one of those guys that 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 got his career kind of got swallowed by that one big hit like Eric Pride's. And it's going to still take a couple more years for him to 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 be recognized for what, he, you know, the quality that he's actually put out in, a, in, a, in addition to Harlem Shake. Yeah, having having a hit, a massive hit single, which this was, it went all the way to number one on the Billboard charts. And that's because this was the this was when they began factoring YouTube into the Billboard charts. So Billboard is at the beginning of the 2010s trying to update their processes. And so this is as big a transformation, like when we talk about uh, music in the 1990s and we talk about the period when Billboard started incorporating sound scan data, you know, CD sales right from the cash register in the 90s, that dramatically changed how the charts looked, which changed everything about how the music was covered. And so they're doing something similar. And instead of point, you know, since music is being sold digitally by this point and not at, at cash registers, the sound scan thing doesn't work anymore. And so they're trying new things. And one of them was factoring in YouTube views. And so Harlem Shake, um, it was driven by other people uploading it and uploading shortened versions of the song. A particularly famous version had four white people dressed up as Power Rangers doing an extremely corny white people dance. Yeah, yeah. it was it was another example of TikTok before TikTok. This is uh, this this song and that whole dance. You, you could even maybe blame TikTok on that because it kind of showed the power of like a of a 20 second video. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was also, he mentioned Sai's Gangnam style, which was um, the South Korean artist Sai had a massive, mass out, massive breakout viral hit. And this was a period when the internet was still kind of wild and woolly enough for there to be viral hits. At this point in time, I think you can kind of have a viral hit on TikTok, but it doesn't spiral out all over the internet the way that it did then. Um, and also there was a racial controversy in the whole thing because he appropriated the name Harlem Shake, which is refers to there are multiple dances in history that have been called the Harlem Shake. And um, but it's a specific Afro-American dance. And then to and he didn't do it. You know, whoever made the video did it, um, you know, this is one of those things where yeah. where just in general, white culture kind of kind of takes something and and yeah, oh, it's it's got a little bit of problematic vibes to it. It's, uh, yeah, it yeah. just happens sometimes. It, We're sorry. <laughs> it's what we do. We're Bigfoot and culture and stomping all over. You know, it's, it's like a, a mama pig in, in a tiny pen with a bunch of little sows and we roll over and crush other people. Oops. Um, then the next thing he does is switch to the Ultra Music Festival. And yeah, this is this was the festival that the the Daft Punk was being promoted at. And this was March 16th, 2013. Um, and again, he does the anecdote thing where he he talks to an older black guy uh, who had been there the la the year before, and and um, who describes his experience. And it's just a classic sort of second summer of love. I mean, it, it's it's 20 years later, but it very much could have been. Um, some soccer hooligan, or football hooligan in London describing his first rave in 1988, you know, where uh, I'm used to cracking heads, but uh, suddenly I'm hugging people. Let's see. Let me find that. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about these these festivals, especially when everybody just started kind of getting into them, is there was there was an attempt uh, to stick with that, you know, all, while while people weren't saying plur necessarily, they understood that that plur is what was expected of them in these festivals. If not under those words, then then the general vibe. And a lot of these festivals, like it really depended on which ones you went to. Like Electric Zoo uh, was a little bit rougher than say Electric Forest. But if you if you chose the you know you're the festival that you went to, you get the vibes that you were looking for. And it really was everybody doing their best to have the greatest time that they could. And it, it really, it really was this kind of euphoric communal thing. And especially considering the fact that today everything is so individualized and people are so isolated. I imagine that was a, a pretty transformative experience for a lot of the kids who were going. And it's probably why it, it's still, it still holds on is that impact and, and that's uh, that attempt to be, to be that, to be this community, to be these people who are cool with each other and stuff like that. Yeah, and the, the specific quote, and this is a middle-aged guy, a middle-aged black guy that he's that he's talking to, who described the previous, the 2012 Ultra Music Festival as quote a life-changing experience. I'm used to a lot of aggression at concerts. I never knew people could be so friendly. It was like I just stepped into fantasy land. And then here's the punchline: Is he going back this year? Nope, I can't afford it. It's too expensive for me. So that kind of sums up the the EDM bust. And he's going to talk about Molly in, a, in another segment. So let's keep moving. But I think uh, the drug intake, again, is a factor in this. And then he talks about two artists at the Ultra Music Festival in 2013, one of whom is Jack Beats. The DJs said that it was the best set of the fest. And the other act that he focuses in on is Disclosure, a.k.a. Guy and Howard Lawrence of London. And they were putting out their album Settle that year. Their new post-step sound is sharply updated UK garage. And um, 
that their success was, quote, emblematic of the EDM audience's maturing tastes. And he cites uh, Maja Jane Cole's Electric Zoo Triumph six months earlier that we, we talked about a second ago. So, yeah, this is kind of the new one of the new things, um, uh, the trap influence sign sound that Bauer is doing. And then this updated um, UK garage sound is, is kind of basically the scene's looking for a post bro step sound. And it, yeah, house has definitely come back. There's this whole pipeline that developed. And it's while some people were just definitely just there for the drugs, a lot of people did like the music. And if they didn't like the music before, they might after taking drugs and hearing it. So once the big room EDM drops get stale, it's just a natural tendency for music fans to delve deeper for more interesting sounds. And there was definitely no lack of variety when it comes to all the subgenres that you could fall into. And each subgenre had its own subculture that you could join as well. So it's like if you're looking for a club, man, there's a whole bunch. Like you can get in with the house heads. You can get in with the drum and bass kids. You can get in with the bass people. Uh, the trance the trance scene is huge. Like whatever you want, there's there's like you've got a, a scene for that. And you can join up, sign up, give, give put the next three to four years of your life into it. Yeah, and then he then he talks about Pretty Lights, aka Derek Vincent Smith of Fort Collins, Colorado. Although I thought Pretty Lights was a duo at one point, but anyway, he only talks about Derek Vincent Smith. But he talks about mostly their fancy light show is what distinguishes them. That they had some very state of the art tech, kind of a projecting disco ball thing. But then musically, Mato says that their quote easygoing stoner grooves replaced dust on needle grit with EDM rubbed shiny quality. Um, and then talks about how they uh, actually played something's got a hold on me by etta james which had been sampled uh, by pretty lights for their track finally moving and also avici had sampled it for his levels and then that allows him to segue into uh, avici um yeah the young swedish producer who passed away unfortunately about five six years ago but at 2012 he kind of jumps because he's gonna ultimately talk about Avicii at the Ultra Music Festival in 2013, but he goes back and talks about, um, I guess he saw Avicii in January of 2012 at Lavo, which he calls the high-end club of nightmares. So that's um, pretty- Super club, super club. Always yeah. very important that it's, uh, we mentioned the fact that these are one of those hottie toddy new super clubs with uh, with the bottle service that that is so hated. Yeah, and the, the checklist is, um, it had horrendous staff, like they refused to give out uh, I heart Avicii pen to a journalist because, uh, quote, one of the bitches that work at Lavo said I was too ugly. So that was journalist Pooja Patel who had that anecdote. Uh, the offspring of Hooters visual presentation, a.k.a. the no shorts policy, does not extend to the dancers on raised platforms. And women who put their hands near your neck and say, I work here. Do you want a shoulder massage? Yuck. And then he, then the, the, the coup de grace is if this place is so upscale, why does the music sound so cheap? And then he totally rips into uh, Avicii. But let's take a, a sponsor break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, what Matos has to say about Avicii. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, when I paused, Matos was trashing the Super Club Lavo, and now he's trashing Avicii, who's he's he says his act was undifferentiated slop with no inkling of a of a dramatic arc. That's easily the harshest thing he says about any artist in the whole book. Uh, yeah, but Avicii was an amazing producer, but but he was known to be a mediocre DJ. He never claimed to be. Uh, a, a specialty DJ. DJing was always secondary to his his producing, and he didn't even want to tour. He wanted to sit at home in his studio and work. But the big bucks in in today's EDM world come from live performances. So by the end, uh, you know, before he killed himself, he was doing over 300 shows a year, and that was at $500,000 per show. So the schedule ended up turning him into an alcoholic and ended up basically killing him. Uh, but at least his managers managed to squeeze every percentage out of him that they could on the way out. That's that's the uh, important thing. And we'll, we're, we're planning to come back and do an episode or two on the Avicii documentary. So I look forward to that. Um, and then he talks about uh, when Avicii plays his Etta James sampling hit levels. Any built-in sense of tribute to James, who died the day before, seems a mere coincidence. So, yeah, he's... he's um, just not connecting. He's not doing the thing that Skrillex was doing of connecting with the audience and doing the Frankie Knuckles thing of making you aware of the present moment. Then he switches to Ultra 2003, where Avicii's set includes, quote, the he commits the apostasy of bringing on a small band, including Gasp, a banjo, uh, which is pretty radical. Uh, talk about corny white people stuff, although ironically the banjo, of course, is an African-American instru African instrument brought to America by the slaves, but nonetheless seen as the ultimate in corny whiteness these days and he, he quote this it's the song he was talking about with wake me up which has now become this mammoth legendary hit single but mato says it has a river dance ready violin sweep and 
galloping beat and it's galloping beat is too close to country for this crowd and the neon kids complain loudly about it online i but, remember when this happened it was like live it was one of those things where as it was happening you were hearing about it and people were tuning in to see what the hell was going on and everybody like stuff was like popping up on the screen like on the official stream screen of of people flipping out in a in a negative way and it's easy to say that the kids didn't get it but that was a massive flop of a debut because it was just a bad live interpretation. The actual studio version of the track is a catchy banger, but they brought in this whole country band and they cranked the band up and they cranked down the percussion and the backing. The bass was non-existent. It sucked because it sucked. And it was just a harebrained idea to debut a dance track by trying to play a live version of it. And a testament to how skilled Avicii was as a pop music writer that the track still became like a massive hit after that unmitigated disaster. Yeah, and Mato says that by July, this is happening in January of 2013, but by July, it's, quote, a global smash. And when he plays it at Belgium's Tomorrowland Festival, 180,000 people sing along lustily. And Afrojack, the producer, is quoted as saying, it's so big it's so big there that it changes everything. You're not just playing for the club, you're playing for the world. So Avicii is kind of standing in for this modern 21st century global music superstar who just happens to come out of the EDM space, but is truly just a pop composer um, playing on, on, on the biggest levels. Um, any, any other Avicii thoughts? I uh, will definitely get back to it when we do his Avicii True Stories documentary. The guy is a bit of a tragic, well, a bit of a tragic figure. He's very Absolutely much a tragic trash. figure. Yeah. And when you, when you look around the internet, uh, his fingerprints are all over everything. Like he's got like a, a Quora account where he answers like 200 questions. The guy was like, he's, he's everywhere. He's a ghost. And it, it always freaked me out how all the tracks that came out after his death subtly wink winked at the fact that he was dead. And I don't know whether or not that was the people going in and making it like that afterwards, or if that was just his mindset when he was making his last music, but it's all very unusual and it's worth an entire episode. Yeah, and we'll get there. And it, it reminds me of Jay Dilla's uh, final album, Donuts. But Dilla knew he was dying when he recorded that. Maybe Avicii knew he was dying when he was recording his last stuff. Then uh, Matos takes us to the Electric Zoo in September of 2013. And um, this is kind of the, the bummer is beginning. The, the, it's a planned three-night concert, but two people die on day two, so they cancel day three. Uh, Bauer had headlined the second night, and Matos gives him some shine says he was the one exception to a sluggish night and now matos finally gets into what reynolds spent so much time on which is this boom and bust cycle of uh mdma use and molly which is powdered mdma but people widely think it's a different drug than e but it's the same stuff and it has the same effect of you use it it's great. You love everybody. You stay up all night dancing. You party, 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 party. You do that for a few months, and then you're just a sluggish zombie. And so he points out that MDMA use uh, depletes serotonin and leaves you in this you know, depressive state. And then he talks to Pasquale Rotella, who's the promoter of this. The, this is the promoter of the Electric Daisy Carnival. We've talked about Rotella multiple times, especially in the Los Angeles chapters. Um and Rotella is unrepentant that at his event, spectacle swallows individual talent, that these shows, the electric juice, the festival has become the thing. And the DJ, the superstar DJ has kind of been dethroned in this era. Would you say it's, it's there's no new Sasha and Digweeds kind of coming out of this scene? 
Yeah, you know, it's 50-50. There are people that who care, who care and there are people who don't. And uh, Insomniac, uh, which is Pascal Rotella's uh, promotion, definitely definitely sells the the overall package. And the names are kind of like, he, he says that the people, you know, like the most important headliner is you. <laughs> and they're very earnest about it. You can be as cynical as you want to be about it. They still get the biggest names. It's still like a you know, it's still like an interchangeable switchboard of of like the same 50 names that everybody else is booking. But, you know, he he's right that when when that's the case, you do have to build this entire spectacle around it. And you do have to, you know, the stage has to be bigger and more ridiculous and shoot bigger flames and the and, and the rides have to be, you know, more involved and, and the decorations have to be off the hook and stuff like that. And, and you know, it's just a completely different other realm from what you experience say when you go into a scene that that has some serious promoters who are serious about bringing the important people who are making the music that matters today and and it's just it's just a different game yeah and then and then he gets into a conversation with rotella about the business at that point in time and this is september 2013 and rotella is pointing out that gross revenue for the previous five to six years had grown 30 to 40 percent a year sometimes more than that but he was already anticipating a shakeout in the um, edm concert business within a year or two and i'd say wasn't the crash around 2015 2016 is that i don't know because i mean like i, I follow this artist or this this guy called the festive owl like the festival the festive owl and and he tracks all the news for festivals and everything that he's posted about the numbers is just up 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 uh, but you know this year after covid ended a lot of festivals came back and then just basically collapsed because uh you know they just didn't have the reserves anymore and then if ticket sales are sluggish or if they take a hit because uh like a town like doesn't want them coming back or something like that they don't have the the financial strength to be able to pivot anymore so this summer has really been the the year of like like dozens of festivals just collapsing at the last minute. Sometimes on the day of the event, it'll just just fall apart and not happen. Ouch. So it took COVID finally to trigger the backlash that Rotella saw coming. As well and, as and numerically, it still wouldn't be a dip because numerically, it's still bigger than ever. I think they were talking about how like halfway through the year, they'd already busted through records from like 2019. So if there if there's less cultural relevance to it or something like that, that's one thing. But on the business side, the business is good. Well, good. And now let's hear our next song. This is Disclosure, Latch. And that was Latch by Disclosure. Why'd you pick that one? You know, uh, Matos gives a lot of credit to Disclosure. I, I, they're, they're not quite my sound, but I recognize the fact that they represent uh, basically anybody that kind of comes in and, and gets serious about about this music. They go to those smoother, more uh, deeper sounds, and, and, and Disclosure really represents that kind of mainstream but deep house sound that became surprisingly popular given the fact that it's not garbage. Yep. 
and and we talked about them at the Alter Music Festival in 2013 uh, a little bit ago. And then the next segment he gets into, um, he zeroes in on Chucky, a, a DJ producer, a.k.a. Clyde Sergio Narain of Holland, and talks about how his deal with Atlantic and Big Beat um, basically allows him to act as his own in-house producer and A&R man, meaning... He's the guy who decides what he records, what he releases, when he releases it, and what package, what format it's released in. And Chucky talks to Matos about the, um, he's kind of bragging that EDM's shorter release schedule has taken over the industry, that it's more singles and more EPs, fewer albums, and it's a more frequent release schedule. The old, this is really when the thriller um, Guns N' Roses model finally dies, like in, in the late 80s video took over and albums went from being you know in the 70s you'd have acdc or kiss putting out like five albums in two years in the 80s you'd have something like thriller michael jackson with thriller or guns and roses appetite for destruction where they would take one album and they would literally milk it for two three years because instead of putting out new music you just put out a new video and so they would release an album spend a ton of time and money in the studio recording an album and then finally release it hype it to the max at massive advertising campaign massive mtv push and then and then drop it and then milk it for years with videos and touring and that model has finally died by 2013 and now it's all about getting new content out and it makes um, sense because people are going to spend maybe you're going to spend a year on this thing and people are going to give you maybe maybe 30 seconds of their undivided attention on it before they decide whether or not they're into it or not, you know, move on or not. So it's better it's better to take more shots than than to like just have an atomic bomb that you're hoping is going to like hit the target. So and and it's it's amazing to me that the music industry took this long to like switch. I know they're dinosaurs and I know they move slowly, but you hear stories about Grimes uh, and her label refusing to like she finished her last album i think a year and a half before they finally released it and she has another like an album and an ep ready to go that apparently isn't going to come out for like another year again and it's just what are you doing like how how are you just not letting her just put out like 20 things a year 20 singles 20 tracks a year and just putting them all out and getting them out there like the, the, the these labels are are so up their own ass about thinking that their a&r department and their uh, and and their hands all over this thing are more important than just the musician just being able to say here it is it's fresh it's done it's co it, it's got this guest star that's the hot person of the moment uh, and just let it run. Yeah, and now a lot of artists are complaining that the record companies won't let them release a new track until they've had a viral hit with it on TikTok. So um, it's. <laughs> You know, Ugh. yeah, getting very, very, very tricky. But then he comes to sort of the old Lang Syne part of the chapter, and he checks in with Derek May, one of the Belleville Three. And, you know, we, we actually are, have already interviewed Michelangelo, uh, and that'll drop next week. But now I'm kicking myself that I didn't get to ask we, – we didn't think to ask him about Derek May's various Me Too scandals and, and how he would reassess Derek May in light of that. But as of – uh, the publication of this book, which was before that stuff had really reached a critical mass. Um, he interviewed Derek May in March 2013 and got some quotes, pretty good quotes from Derek May. Derek May says, um, you realize the clock doesn't run forever. 
I'm like Roy from Blade Runner. I've traveled to the Orion system, sunbeams across oceans. I've seen the same things and it's beautiful, but the reality is one day it has to stop. I'm really happy I've had the chance to do that and be happy. And then Mata says, you helped predict the future of music. Did you imagine what you were doing was have as much of an impact as it has? And May classic says yes we did <laughs> we were scared because we knew and i knew that when i knew that when we were doing it i knew it was i was supposed to do something special i didn't know what it was i thought i was going to be an athlete i scared myself and i'm sure kevin and juan and he started referring to kevin saunderson and juan atkins the other two of the belleville three uh, when I realized what it was, you know, and so he's basically saying that when they were creating techno, they knew that they were igniting a cultural atomic bomb. And yeah, and Juan Atkins seems like the kind of very deliberate and thoughtful person who would recognize that when they were building up and getting ready for Cybotron, they had an entire they had an entire manifesto and a whole ethos and idea of, of what was going on and how it was going to go and stuff like that. So th these are thoughtful dudes who who really kind of recognized the uniqueness of what they were doing. Yeah. And that thing about feeling like I have a destiny. I mean, I felt that way. It turned out to be wrong. But, you know, um, the Beatles felt that way and turned out they were right. So who knows? Maybe it's just sort of a salmon going to the to the homeland. Everybody has that feeling and some of a, a handful of people succeed. And they're the ones that we go back and listen to when time passes. It also makes me think sorry, of something that Kurt Cobain's mother said to him when she heard um uh, never mind for the first time. And she realized immediately that it was going to be a massive, massive hit just when she heard it. And she cried and told him, are you sure you want to do this? Do you know what this means? And so I think Derek May and Juan Atkins and those cats, they knew what it meant. They were students of this game. They were students of both the business and the cultural impact side of it. So they knew they were messing with extremely powerful forces um, and plunged right in. Yeah, and it's kind of like Daft Punk recognized it as well to the point where they decided, okay, time to put time to put these helmets on and not take them off for 20 years. <laughs> A very, very smart play. Um, and then we turn to Frankie Knuckles, and he, and he talks about, um, I guess this is probably the last time that Mato saw Knuckles play, and this was in April of 2013. The headline to Boiler Room in Brooklyn, which Matos describes as basically a roving VIP room with a fixed webcam streamed globally to over a million subscribers. So very different than the Warehouse 1983 or, or the Continental Baths 1973, where Frankie Knuckles came up. But um, Matos says, and summing up the show, he says, in italics, this is Frankie Knuckles. He can still deliver a present tense moment on a dance floor like nobody else. And then he talks about, you know, Frankie's kind of last decade that he said he had battled health problems from 2000 on, had a snowboarding accident, uh, broke his foot. Then that got developed bone disease, which was exacerbated by his late uh, developing diabetes. He finally lost his right foot in July of 2008. But he was enjoying a late career renaissance that was kicked off by his remix of Hercules and Love Affairs, Blind, uh, which was something that people were very at – the, at that point, Frankie Knuckles had been a massive commercial remix. Mixer for so long that hip artists like Hercules and Love Affair, their A&R people were reluctant to let Frankie Knuckles remix their stuff because he's a big room remixer and he's not going to understand our little niche house stuff. But and just I mean, to put it into con uh, context, that that Hercules and Love Affair blind remix was one of the songs of the summer. Like you couldn't you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that. Like, all the house people were playing it. It was uh, so and it's really cool to know 
now that we know that, you know, he was just, you know, coming up on his last days that he got such a big hit like that, which allowed him to kind of go back out and, and reestablish himself as, you know, still as powerful a DJ as he was in his prime. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And the victory tour unfortunately ended March, uh, 2014. He played ministry of sound on March 30th and then, uh, flew home and passed away the next day at age 59. So I guess he died in April of 2014. And then president Obama fittingly sent a letter of tribute uh, to be read at Frankie Knuckles funeral. And of course, Obama from Chicago, and he had already um, recognized Frankie Knuckles around the turn of the millennium when he was just a state senator there. So, um, and it's yeah, not, they, re, they renamed a street in Chicago Frankie Knuckles Way and uh, Obama. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> yep, that's one I'll, I'll give him. I mean, you know, and, and you got to hand it, you know, you wouldn't have seen Trump um, uh, giving plaudits to Frankie Knuckles. Probably not Biden either. So I'm, I'm glad that worked out for Frankie Knuckles. So, you know, uh, a good send off to Frank, the great Frankie Knuckles. Um, and then here's our last track. Let's go ahead and play it. This is Avicii, Wake Me Up. This is... Live at Ultra 2013. And that was Avicii's Wake Me Up, the live version from Ultra 2013. So you've kind of already told us why you picked this version, but go ahead. And- yeah, I, I can't I can't, you know, talk about it without without playing it and just saying, you know, if they had done that a year after it came out or six or, you know, even a couple of months after it came out, it would have everybody would have lost their minds in a good way. But again, to debut a dance track with a live country uh, arrangement. I mean, it was already a daring decision to go country uh, as much as he did in a studio setting. So to just bring out a country band at, at, at Ultra, was, again, uh, you can't you can't fault them for having having some balls. Yeah, they, they swung for the fences and whiffed. But the song ultimately uh, goes on to become a massive hit. And then he uh, segues to our final party in the party of the chapter. And, and it's Daft Punk at the Grammys. Um, and 2014 and he talks about how they just sweep everything let me let's see the he has a list of grammy bait factors that the um he says that um it was obvious beforehand that daft punk was going to sweep the grammy awards random access memories is a comeback album which the grammys love by a group that helped turn a corner on music biz profitability which the grammys love that despite the group's claims on edginess is a gigantic love letter to the past, again, which the Grammys love, specifically the big-budget blockbusters, the Grammys festoons with awards in the 70s and 80s. It's the Christopher Cross rule. Whoever hires the most session players wins. So, there, you know, it was any music biz analyst could tell you that why they were going to do well, and they did indeed. Yeah, um, they spent the money too, like not only on 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 the pre-release, but also I'm sure they there was there was a lot of like really cool swag bags handed out to all the uh, the Grammy voters. Yeah, no doubt. And then he talks about um, working with Todd Edwards, the producer we've talked about several times in this series on Get Lucky, and talks about how 
hook packed get lucky is and then basically says everything leading up to it wasn't as good and everything uh after it wasn't as good so again kicking kicking random access memories around and then he you just can't have a, a hit like get lucky or or lose yourself to dance and then like the, everything else around it defies uh definition and again like they were they were leaning heavily into like 70s la uh, almost uh, like very, very prog rock, very uh, yacht rock. They were doing yeah, yacht rock, just basically, up. basically. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, I understand why no one got it, and people still don't get it. But you take those tracks individually, and you remove the disco hits from it. It, it makes for a pretty, pretty smooth listen on a Saturday afternoon in the sun. I tell you. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. And then he zeroes in on the after party, which is the the party of the thing. And Tommy Sunshine, our old friend, who's been at multiple chapters, uh, is there and and bumps into, um, let's see, I mean, just everybody who's everybody is there on the deck. Yeah, again, it's it's in. like another another montage. It's like a whole bunch of people who made it, who who were there through the 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 the, the crazy storm of the '90s and 2000s, and then it, they they all kind of meet at this 2020 or this uh, 2014 after party and there's all these survivors there. So it's a feel good moment for the scene. Yeah. It's kind of like the moment in a Wes Anderson movie where they have everybody walking in slow motion at the end of the movie and they, and they give shots to basically every character actor in the whole film. So yeah, you've got all these characters coming back in. Um, and you know, Chris Holmes, who's an old friend of sunshine's from the electro clash period is there. Skrillex is there. Zed is there. Um, just, uh, yeah, just all the all the stars are out for the big. Um, Nile Rogers, of course, is there. The Sheik uh, producer and legend Paul Williams, the Muppet um, movie music writer, is there. And and if you were alive in, in the '70s, and many of you were lucky enough not to be alive because you were too young, but Paul Williams was on TV constantly. He was an omnipresent person on like the Mike Douglas Show and the Tonight Show, and. There was a movie of the week starring him. He was a tiny little guy. He was almost albino, long blonde hair, very, very big pop culture figure in the 70s. And and I guess the Muppet movie is his most lasting work, which, hell, uh, Rainbow Connection all day, man. I mean, you know. Is that uh, the name of uh, Fozzie's band or whatever? That's the <laughs> one. That's, uh, yeah, Kermit's. Uh, I think Kermit's and Miss Piggy's big duet. Um, so, you know, and, and he, 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 shouted out Daft Punk as they were the first musicians of their generation to dig him up and he was thankful. And then um and then I guess we'll we'll wrap with the oh and Questlove got to play. Like Questlove, the drummer for the Roots, also a DJ collaborator with Jay Dilla and uh, D'Angelo and leader of the Neo Soul movement. He was their first Daft Punk's first choice to DJ at the party. They had all kinds of people on the list. He thought he wasn't going to make it because he has to fly to manhattan every week to work on the whatever tonight show or whatever he's jimmy on. i think it's jimmy, jimmy fallon, fallon was yeah. yeah which is just such a uh, i mean yeah. good for them i'm glad they got paid but what a what a what a what a <laughs> gilded cage that is yeah but the roots had already shot their shot by that point you know their peak work was in the 90s early 2000s so it's a great gig for them and i'm glad he's been able to he's really parlayed that well he's kind of turned into the black dave Grohl. like he's on every in every documentary he produced that great um uh festival 1969 music festival last year so wrote a book i mean Questlove has just kind of become one of these elder statesman of american music at this point but he his flight was canceled so he got to play so another happy ending and then i want to read the final paragraph of the book one party isn't the world 
though some are so great they can make you believe that it could be. But a party can be a beginning. The Grammys aren't so good at being the world either, but their distance from the cutting edge signals when something is acceptable to the music business, whatever form it takes. Dancing till four in the morning on a psychedelic floor at a party for two men who'd heard the future in house and techno music played in warehouses, the dance music underground, and the big music biz, entities that had circled one another for a generation, finally embraced and said, welcome to the machine. So there's our happy ending. EVM, EDM, and the music business make peace and become one. Yeah, and that's the story that I take out of this is, is that, you know, it was a boom and we we're all waiting for a bust, but it wasn't so much of a bust as it was just like we just got swallowed. And now we're, we're there with rock and hip hop and no one talks about whether or not they're going to die or go out of style. We just ride in the waves now and it's all just a part of the machine. Yep, that it is. Although rock has died and is <laughs> going out of style, but um, EDM and hip hop, I think, have a little bit more life in them. But yeah, so final thoughts on on the book and the series. Yeah, I think it's just you know it was it's a, a really good book and uh, it's I, f I feel like the only problem is that in order to get a proper historical context on a lot of the stuff that went on from you know 2010 to 2015, it's almost like it was too soon to be able to get a definitive view of that. So when Matos kind of goes in, he has to give more of a of a of his own view of what's going on because he recognizes the fact that this isn't the definitive tale of of kind of the most recent period because history only becomes clear with enough distance. So we're still waiting for, for a, a clearer picture on that, but everything leading up to that, I'd say everything right up to Daft Punk uh, at Coachella, a very firm historical uh, tome uh, worth anybody's time. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm always looking forward to seeing what Matos has coming up next. I'm going to be picking up his book on 1984 uh, basically as soon as we get off the air. Yeah, and it's, I highly recommend that book. It's an excellent book. We could do a whole series on that book. Um, it, it's really excellent. He's agreed to come back and, and, and talk to me for an hour about it. But that, that's a book that covers 1984 in the same depth that he covers dance music from 1983 to 2015. So an incredible, incredible run. And I'm looking forward to having him back. And like I said, he'll be on the show next week, and you can hear us uh, ask him some questions and and. Uh, uh, get called on the carpet for some of our mistakes. I he didn't really call us on the carpet, but anyway, it was fun. It, it was fun to. Uh, it was to cool to have uh, such a such an active participant who was clearly listening and stuff. I think maybe Simon Reynolds was like aware of it, but maybe you know I think he not listened to the first episode and uh, drifted away. But yeah, I, I understand it's hard. Even I, I have a hard time even listening to myself as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't listen to music podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. But anyway, for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've wrapping up our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Montes. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate finish the series with an interview with author Michelangelo Matos. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.